It's time for Off the Curve with Justin Spiro. Oh, welcome back to Off the Curve. Justin Spiro with you. It's our second iteration of this great program. Appreciate you being with us. It's going to be an interesting one tonight, bringing in one of my dear friends. We're not going to make you wait for him. He's never here to talk about anything good. It's always something tragic or upsetting in some regard. Uh, we'll have to change it up at some point and talk about, I don't know, the Lions or something, because that'll cheer everyone up. But he is a longtime friend of mine going back to high school, a fan favorite from the Spiro Avenue show. Wade Fink, criminal defense attorney from Birmingham, Michigan. How are you? Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me back. I do. I will take you up on that, though. Uh, a happier topic, please. I know you have an expertise in kind of a messed up uh, area. You know, you you do sure. criminal defense and uh, you know criminal law just generally. And I know from my own experience uh, in law school, like that's I thought it was the most interesting, but certainly can be a little bit dark. And uh, yeah, we'll work on like kind of the our Monday night sports scan days uh, in the future. <laughs> but in the meantime, we'll keep it kind of heavy for at least one more uh, occasion here. Well, so, I appreciate the invite. Thanks, Justin. Uh, happy to have you back. And, you know, this was by demand. This wasn't even my idea. As much as I love you, this was like a fan-demanded <laughs> appearance and topic. So uh, here in Michigan, we had uh, another one of these police shootings. I always like to say it's not a true another one because all of these have completely different circumstances, some justified, some not. Uh, the incident in Grand Rapids, I promised I wouldn't butcher the name, but the the, the guy's last name, I've heard it pronounced three different ways, so apologies to his family if I mess this up, but uh, Patrick Wioya um, was in an incident with the Grand Rapids PD. Um, I, I don't want to get too much into breaking it down verbally. We did pull the clip. We're going to start there, and then we're going to kind of break into the legal elements here, what took place as far as we can tell. I want to let the video speak for itself to begin and I, I will just issue the warning. This is a human being being shot dead. So, uh, you know, certainly use viewer discretion if there's any kids around or uh, if it's sensitive for, for you. Certainly, I would uh, maybe duck out for a minute. But let's run that, Ben, and, and we'll get into it. Let go of the taser! No, he ain't got no taser. I see, I see that. Let go of the taser! Drop taser! Get back! So, obviously, I mean, whatever your legal interpretation is or layman's interpretation of, of that situation is just awful. Uh, it, it's hard to watch. I honestly kind of averted my eyes having uh, Ben play it there because I've, I've watched it too many times and uh, preparing for tonight. But I, I'll start with framing this way like this. I, there's always kind of two camps, and feel free to disagree, but I, I tend to see two camps that always prevail in any situation like this. You have camp one, which is the, eh, maybe it wasn't the best shoot ever, but you know maybe if you weren't resisting arrest, it wouldn't have been a problem. Like someone should have taught him to obey authority or whatever. Like you get like those people, and then you get sort of camp number two, which is, uh, you know, all police officers around the country are out hunting typically black people on the streets and it's they're just executing them summarily. I, I tend to think it, it's neither of those. I think both those camps are kind of too extreme. I don't want to talk about the overarching issue. That's a big, big topic for a different day. But in this incident, 
What do you see, having seen the tape? I know you had seen it before, having watched it back. What do you see from a legal perspective? Is the Grand Rapids police officer who has not yet been named in any legal trouble here, do you think? So, I, Justin, I think you're used to me being uh, sometimes equivocal and, and qualifying answers. And and I think that's probably a good way to be. And, and I would add some of the ordinary precautions of some facts still have to come out. Um, I, I don't know what this officer's explanation is going to be, and it could be something unexpected. There are facts I may not know or audio I cannot hear. So all the usual qualifications that I would always keep an open mind um, to things I, I cannot know or see at this point. But with those qualifications, um, I want to be clear that what you just watched based in unless your eyes or ears are betraying you or there's something uh, we don't know was an execution of a 26 year old black man in broad daylight in grand rapids we can talk about the legal um parameters the the due process and what needs to be shown or not shown how charging decisions work for christopher becker the prosecutor in Grand Rapids, what the defense would be if it was self-defense. We can talk about all those things, and I'm happy to explain uh, why I've come to the conclusion I have based on what you watched in the minutes beforehand. Um, that was a disgrace. That was an intentional homicide um, that by an officer who was gassed and exhausted, who couldn't control a suspect, who was trying to run away from him, not harm him. Uh, there's a three minutes that precede that clip that show this man was trying to run away. And instead of removing himself from the situation, backing off and seeing what happened, did he run? Did he stay in front of him? Could he call for backup? Instead of relying on what should be the training, he put the cold steel of a nine millimeter in the back of a 26 year old's neck and pulled the trigger. That was an execution. That was a no due process. That was an absolute execution in the street. That was second degree murder. And I would uh, find it very difficult to be a criminal defense attorney trying to justify um, what happened there. I, I know there will be talk about the taser, and I'm happy to go in any direction how this conversation goes. But, Justin, there, I would be remiss as a criminal defense attorney with 90-plus percent, probably closer to 100 than 90, of my clientele as black men. And I see every day when I watch body cams and videos every day for as many good officers and good relationships I have from FBI agents to local police departments. There's a lot of good ones. In fact, I represent police officers. My dad represented Larry Nevers, probably one of the most controversial uh, black, white police officer and uh, suspect situations in, in history, certainly in Detroit. So it's not like I'm unsympathetic to the challenges and dangers of being a police officer. But by and large, what I see in um, the interactions between law enforcement and young black men in this country, which is corroborated by statistics um, and all the research on the topic, is we have a law enforcement in this country, especially on the state level, that is woefully and inadequately prepared um, to deal with situations, to diffuse them. And instead, they turn stops for license plates like this one into deadly encounters and the executions and it's an absolute tragedy and i think that um of all the dangers of the world that comes with being 
uh, an impoverished young black male in America, police are among the most dangerous to those men. Yeah, and I, I certainly I hear you from like the human perspective. I think my takeaway, which is not coming from a practicing licensed attorney, although some background and legal training in that, but is pretty much aligned with yours. Like at the end of the day, that doesn't really feel like that guy needed to die to keep anybody safe. That's just not the uh, impression I get watching it. I don't think you need to have an expert legal mind to get like you can you can see interactions with the police where someone's grabbing a gun, reaching for a knife, taking a swing, you know, with a knife or something where it's like, okay, you know, we did have that incident. I can't remember. Was it Chicago where a woman had a knife and was like about to impale her friend? That police officer got a lot of uh, flack for that. But I think that's like, okay, that, that was a good shooting. That was like, someone is going to die here. It's either going to be her or the other woman. I'd rather air on the side of the innocent person who's not wielding a, a deadly weapon right. but i don't think that is really the case here you mentioned the taser there was that case in georgia where an officer actually was disarmed um, his own taser was pointed against him and he was shot and they declined to charge that officer on the basis of you know the taser could be a deadly weapon he could in- incapacitate the officer you know, there was a great risk of bodily harm or death to the officer in that situation. This is not quite that. There's no evidence that he had full possession of the taser and had it pointed at the officer. But I do wonder, having watched the tape, it doesn't seem to jive with the commentary because he's saying, let go of the taser, let go of the taser. Like, I'm not seeing a taser in in his hand pointed at the officer. I mean, what what am I missing there? So a minute and a half or so, or maybe two minutes, somewhere in that range before the, the final 10 seconds there, the, the, the horrific clip that we have all seen. Um, there is, you know, the three minutes before that, there's the initial interaction. Uh, the uh, Mr. Uh, I'm going to pronounce it too. Had it. Leoya is how I, I, that's, I heard a family, one of his aunts said Leoya, so I'm going with Leoya, that. okay. But I have heard it. Leoya, we'll, day, go, so we'll go with that. I've heard no that. No disrespect as, intended, but I just think, course. you know, so. Um, and I've heard it pronounced differently. Mr. Leoya initially runs away, and then that's when the, the tussle begins. And there, it's on camera, both on the body cam of the officer and on the cell phones, where the officer takes out the taser at a range that he's not supposed to. Uh, but he does, and Mr. Leoya grabs the front end of the taser, I'm using this as a crass example, to push it away from being pointed at him. You can hear the tasers then discharged uh, twice. And with that kind of taser, typically it has two charges in it, and you've probably seen it before where the darts come out. And, and then it's useless unless you take that clip out and you can use it kind of just as a handheld taser. But at the point at which... Um, they were on the ground for that that those final moments that taser was not operable uh, just in and i and i don't uh, i think it was said at the initial press conference that the two discharges were heard it's kind of an acknowledgement of that um some of those tasers and i don't we don't need to get into the nuances of um uh non deadly weapons even though they can they are very much deadly weapons uh it was rendered useless by those two discharges not to mention um, there was no evidence in the three minutes of this encounter that Mr. Leoya wanted to do anything but flee. He, he pushed the, um, you know, the end of that taser away from his body, not didn't attempt to take it or turn it on the officer. Instead, he was trying to flee. And 
to make that your justification instead of withdrawing yourself. And you know, we can talk about the elements of self-defense and the elements of intentional homicide. But instead of withdrawing yourself and seeing what happened, did Mr. Leoyo continue to run? Was there a conversation that could be had? Could he radio for backup? And instead, your reaction is to take out a, a handgun and put it to the, I mean, think about where he put that handgun to the back of this man's neck and pull the trigger. That, that was his decision how he was going to end this, this tussle. So, no, I don't think that this is anywhere near um, the, th the, the threat of a taser being pointed at you and an imminent threat of uh, great bodily harm or death because, yeah, if you get disabled by a taser, it certainly could be seen theoretically as reasonable to think, well, God, if I, if I get uh, taken up to the ground here or if I get uh, disabled in some way, I can't fight back. I don't know what this person's going to do. wasn't the case here. He's on top of this guy's back who was trying to flee the whole time. And sometimes, especially in encounters like this, where we're talking about a license plate violation, sometimes you just got to let people flee. You know, they're going to get a felony charge. He's going to get a resisting and obstructing felony charge. He's going to get a fleeing and eluding charge. And there's better ways to approach it. Find him and he'll get arrested and, and he'll get his due process and, and he'll be charged and held accountable for what he did. But law enforcement encounters in this country turn deadly at such a high rate, it is uh, appalling, and, and it, it can't become numb to it, because this isn't how it's supposed to be. Law enforcement, whether it's better training, better wages, uh, best, better personality types that we seek to go into law enforcement, they have to be better. Uh, there's no question the great challenges they face, but to be tired and exhausted with no backup and you don't know how you're going to arrest this guy for the answer to be, I'm going to shoot him in the back of the head. It's murder. Yeah. It, it reminded me a lot of the Oscar Grant situation in Oakland. Uh, you know, they made the movie about a Fruitvale station and uh, Michael B. Jordan was in, it was fantastic. And where somebody is on the ground face down and is just shot with no, they don't have a weapon. They're not even swinging. They're more just kind of like, uh, wig, wiggling their body. It wasn't even like he was flailing his arms, taking swings at the officer, but yeah, it, it, it's similar to that. And those officers were charged. So I, I think that's uh, not that it's a binding precedent necessarily, but it's just somewhat instructive. I think that a similar situation to this did result in the prosecution of the officer involved. I, I think you said it best with the issue with the taser I didn't even realize that about the once it was discharged, it was disabled, because if that is uh, true, and I, I take your word for it, I don't see where the officer goes with his defense, because I know he is a, if he is in fact charged, he is a seven-year veteran, not a 30-year veteran, but a seven-year veteran knows that that weapon or the taser was disabled, right? I mean, I would have to think that would be the argument, like, look, you've been on the job seven years, you've had you know, annual retraining and the use of this device, you knew that thing was incapacitated as a, as a weapon that could not be used against you. So that's, that's the sticking point right there where now I don't know where he goes. I don't know what the argument is because the argument that you did have in, in my mind before you made that point was, hey, man, if he thought the taser was going to take him out, that's, you know, maybe you can have that discussion. But with that gone, I don't know where he goes. I mean, wh where do you take this if, if he's... I'm not, I'm not, I'm only, I've really only dealt with one taser case in um, Shiawassee County, which was an encounter of a six foot seven black man who had no criminal history with a much smaller police officer who was afraid and tased my client eight times. That's the only time I ever dug into, you know, the dangers and the workings of tasers. There are different models. 
but generally speaking, and it seems just me reading between the lines. So I could be wrong. That's why I'm always open to new information. That's why I always throw on my qualifiers, but you put a, in order to, to shoot a taser, you know, with the clips that go into the body and, and send the electrical current, there, you have, you clip something onto a handheld device. So theoretically, I suppose you could take off uh, those, the, I don't know the right terms, I'm going to call it the clip, uh, and then it's usable again. But I think the point was being made at the press conference, and it certainly has been by um, uh, the AP made this point, that it was fired twice and therefore, in theory, uh, couldn't be used again. Um, unless somehow the you know device was changed. So to answer your question, where does he go? There, there may be. I'll always leave room for facts we don't know um, about things. Maybe we couldn't hear between the two. Uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, conversations or what he was saying to him, uh, or did he mean to fire the to, to the trigger when he pulled out the gun? Will those arguments work? I, I don't think so, but. In theory, I guess that's that's what you would try to say, or you would say that it was, uh, you know, a heat of passion and and try to get this from a, a an intentional homicide, like a second degree murder case, uh, to something lesser. But I gotta say, Justin, and I have no problem doing it, even though I have some cases in that county. Christopher Becker and his office have no problem charging uh, black men with resisting and obstructing. When he took over that office, there was an increase 35% in, in prosecution rates, and he was on a local TV show touting that and saying crime was up. Well, might be a new prosecutor charging more crime, too, but uh, he has no problem charging young black men with resisting and obstructing. Um, he can let this play out and let the process, let the Michigan State Police do their, their job, but this needs to be charged. That was a homicide. Barring something completely uh, unknown to the public, which, again, is possible, I suppose. Um, that man needs to be held accountable for ending a 26-year-old immigrant's life at 26 years old, um, who was confused. He may not have spoke English well. Um, who knows? And that's part of the reason for better training and traffic encounters. You just don't know who you're encountering or what you know who they are, or what they're going through, or what they understand or what they don't. So it's just it's such a tragedy, Justin. And there's so much to talk about on this topic: police training and encounters, and vehicle stops, and and you know when you're talking about petty crimes like license plate and expired tags and um, driving while suspended and things like that, and interactions with police. I mean, in the last five years, 400 motorists were killed by police officers in nonviolent stops of some kind, in traffic stops. It's insane. Now, there's a danger to police officers, to be sure. Again, come from a family of lawyers who's represented them. I've seen Larry Never's uh, Black Journal, my dad always used to talk about. His daily journal, you know, run down this drug dealer, got in a fight with this guy. I mean, it's insane what police officers, you know, a lay person who doesn't have to deal with that, what they have to deal with. I'm not minimizing that. But in not minimizing it, let's also not overstate the danger to police officers. New York Times came out with a statistics that a, there's a, about a one in 3.8 million chance that a police officer is going to die in, during a traffic stop. And you would think by the way that we talk about the danger to police officers that it's one of the most dangerous things an individual can do. It's not. But it's certainly a very dangerous thing for a black man to encounter a police officer. Uh, and the statistics bear that out. What's the sort of distinction? Because I was never in law school really even taught about 
like police interactions. It came up in some cases, but just in terms of statutes and, and general practice of law, what we typically see across this country. What's the difference between a police officer's use of excessive force and I'm a guy, somebody broke into my house, they stole my wife's necklace, they're running out, they, I catch them, they're running out the door and I shoot them in the back of the head. Right. Like, Do police have a little bit more leeway, a little more discretion? My understanding is they do, but just, just from the legal perspective, I don't want to talk about moral. Yeah, of course. Well, what does the law say? So the jury instruction on self-defense accounts for things like that, Justin. It's a great question. So the jury instruction on self-defense, and when we talk about self-defense, there's two types of self-defense when we're talking about using force. There's the use of deadly force, right, where you take an action that's likely to kill someone, or non-deadly force, where you take an action that's not likely to kill but still uh, somehow using force. So here we're talking about deadly force. There's both an objective and a subjective part of what a jury is told to look at for self-defense. The subjective part is, did that person actually, subjectively, the the individual, this officer, did he believe he was in danger of dying or of great bodily harm? Did that person actually believe it? Do I, as a juror, think that that officer actually sincerely believed that? That's the subjective question. The objective question is, to look at based on the circumstances that you see, the threat, the past interaction, any weapons on the person, there's a whole list that's in the jury instruction of what to consider. Is it objectively in the juror's opinion based on these facts, is it reasonable for that person to feel that way? So you have this objective and subjective standard that a juror is supposed to consider. And the reason I tell you that in answer to this question is because that's what accounts for a police officer's scenario, right? because the circumstances are gonna be a whole lot different than Justin's circumstances in his house, right? You might have a lot more um, leeway in how you act in some circumstances, right? You're alone at night at 4 a.m. and someone's in your house, you have no idea who you are. Of course, it's reasonable for you to to be in fear and panic that something horrible is gonna happen. Whereas an officer who has tons of interactions and arrests people all the time and, you know, uh, has to rely on their experience, you may be assessing that differently, right? There's obviously some similarities and, and the test remains the same. But of course, a person's experience, that's how you judge the subjective part and how you apply the objective part to that subjective part. You have to look at the person's background and, and, and what they believed at the time, what their history was. I mean, it, it can be relevant in these cases sometimes. You know, I've had a, a situation, a self-defense case where there had been threats for many years. So all of that's going through my client's mind at the time this final encounter occurred. All those things matter in, in a jury assessing self-defense. That's why these are hard cases. And you need both to, to be clear. You Correct. have to satisfy both. The, the, the cop has to genuinely believe it. Yep. And then the jury has to say that that belief is reasonable. Now, there's so In other words, you're not making it up just to get out of it, right? But right. and also it has to be a reasonable belief. There used to be something in Michigan called imperfect self-defense, where you actually thought you were, you know, maybe someone thought that that person was possessed by a demon and is, and is going to kill me. I actually believe that, but it wasn't a reasonable belief. So that would lessen it to manslaughter. That's called imperfect self-defense. Doesn't exist anymore in Michigan. But that's a, a demonstration of you need both actual belief and the jury has to believe that your belief is reasonable. 
I'm even willing to give the officer if this did end up at trial, one of the two. Now that's with the caveat that there's going to be hours of testimony that comes out. If this goes to trial, there's going to be depositions. There's going to be new evidence. We don't know about, I'll throw in all the same caveats that you do. But if, if I were a member of the jury and the entirety of the evidence was just this tape, but pretend to me, the officer did not seem like a vindictive. I'm going to kill this motherfucker. Like to me, he was erratic, out of control, irrationally yeah. in fear. So I'm actually, I can be convinced based on just that, that this officer really did think that he was in imminent danger. But the objective, I, I just, I, I'm not there. I, I just, I can't, I can't get there. And that's where I, I tend to agree with you in terms of the legal aspect here. I, I don't feel good about it if I'm, if I'm it's the officer. Or I, don't, I don't think there's much in the way of premeditation or plan, you know, like this was a first degree murder planned and deliberated. I mean, it's probably a second degree murder or a manslaughter question. I would tend to say second degree murder is what I would charge. Uh, but your, your point is a good one because that may be the case. This officer, I really just based on watching this, you know, too many times, uh, I think he's gassed. You can hear him on his on his body camera. He can hardly catch his breath. He can't get this guy under control. There's no backup. He's got people around him with cameras. And I think he just decided this is the only way that I know how to end it for sure without anything happening to me. I, I think that he might have believed that. I, I'm not imputing some, you know, that this is necessarily uh, uh, overt racism in his mind or some plan, but I don't think any reasonable person can look at the circumstances around him and say that that was a reasonable thought to have or a reasonable process. There's a, a million outs here. The The easiest one was step off of him and see what happens. If he runs, he runs. This is not a guy that's got a murder warrant out for him or he's a, you think he has a weapon. His car is there. You got his license plate and you'll figure it out. Same thing with that DUI in Atlanta. I forgot the gentleman's name who was shot. Um, in a struggle in Atlanta, he was drunk in his car in a parking lot. Sometimes it's okay to just let them go. Um, obviously, if they're a danger to the community, like the last monster we talked about on the show in the school shooter, of course you're going to have to take him in any way you can because he's a danger. Uh, but in these circumstances, uh, when you just don't know what you're dealing with, clearly the guy was either confused, troubled, didn't speak English well, he, he came from a war-torn country, who knows how he views law enforcement. There's just times where you have to diffuse and, and figure out how you're going to deal with it later. Not a full metal jacket to this man's skull. It just it makes my blood boil that a life um, was taken because this officer was just gassed and didn't know what to do with himself. Uh, I, I, he has to be punished, but also the system is responsible for not preparing its officers uh, for for dealing with these interactions. Well, let, let's talk about the system briefly with the preparation of these officers, because that was actually my next question anyway. I don't know if you're even aware of the answer to this. Maybe this I call a sheriff instead. I don't know. Let me know. Are they trained to, hey, you know, the guy's going a little bit wacky. It's a uh, he wrote a bad check. It's not a violent thing. He's not armed. Let him go. Like what, what is the police training there? I have no idea. Cause I under, I, I happen to agree with you. Like why, especially if there's a gun involved, you pull a gun on the guy. It's totally, I, it's totally to based on the department and leadership, what they're willing to be open to the personalities of the officers they hire. I mean, there's, there's so many elements here. There is uh, many progressive, so to speak, excuse me, sheriffs and law enforcement uh, across the country that are willing to engage in 
in, in trying to reshape the way we train police and the way we recruit and police academies. But unfortunately, and it's in a conversation that I'm sure you and I don't want to have just for not because of our beliefs, just because it's it's so hot. Uh, there's a lot of politics to it. I mean, you have a, a candidate running for um, governor against Gretchen Whitmer uh, who came out without knowing anything about this case and says that Democrats always support the criminal. I support the cop. <laughs> she doesn't know anything. Yeah. She has, she's not open to nuance. I mean, I, so if that's the person in leadership, you know, I have people in my neighborhood with we support our police. I do too. But just because I, I care about my clients and and trying to make the community better and believing in community policing, not uh, a law and order, uh, doesn't make me not support my police. So you have this environment, Justin, where I just, if, if you suggest anything like that in leadership, uh, it's hard to be um a, a law and order sheriff or in a conservative county or or um you know you, it's a balancing act and i think it, and that's a reflection kind of of the political environment but the short answer is yes there is some progress but not not nearly enough um and too much reliance on the old way of policing um when really the old old way of policing is what we kind of need to return to and that's community policing you knew the officers in your in your community, and they knew what the problems were, what the beefs were, who lived where, what the problem. That's what good community policing is, and that's the old old policing. And you know, since the war on drugs started, it's been a much different world. Um, but I, I return to that with some um, uh, with some reliance on progress as, of, of humanity that we're witnessing problems here. Let's address it. Uh, would go a long way. I just, the political environment is very bad for this, for progress in this uh, area. Yeah. I mean, I, with the police thing, I've been accused of being a far right wing nut based <laughs> on my take on certain police interactions sure. and then the complete opposite of bleeding heart liberal. I take them individually. It's saying like I'm pro police. It's kind of like saying I'm pro businessman or business person. Like, right. what does that mean? Like, yeah, I'm pro people having businesses. If Are you are you running a Ponzi scheme? I'm not pro that business guy. Like it depends what you're doing. I am pro police as a default, but once you bring in a, a gun and you're shooting a guy who's unarmed and doesn't seem to be a, posing any real threat to anybody, that's where, okay, I'm, I'm not pro that police officer. So that's the thing. I, I hate the, the constant. And this is where I give you a lot of credit. You came out. I don't think I'm, I'm, you know, letting any huge uh, mysteries out that you tend to lean left. I think that's fair. Uh, you came out in the Kyle Rittenhouse case after the fact and said, look, I think, I think it's a joke that that guy was there, but by letter of the law, jury got it right. Like he, it's, that's, I respect your perspective because it's, it's mine, although mine's not from the same expertise as yours is, but it's case by case. Like it's not right, left. It's like, it's just what's right or wrong. And this to me is wrong. It doesn't pass the smell test. Your legal perspective is enlightening. It certainly doesn't seem to pass the, the legal muster that it needs to. I, I, I had a, a professor in law school that said, uh, never say never and never say always. You know, that was his big, like, it's, there's so many exceptions because people would say, well, what if this happened? Well, it, you might have a, cra a crazy juror that, you know, yeah, it's, you never know. But your feel, and we'll wrap here, is there any chance really more than 1% that this doesn't end up in charges press because to me it's like it's inevitable and, and from there if they are 
what are the chances this officer is acquitted based on what we know? We know, you know, with all the caveats that we already put out there. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I was, uh, if there was a, a bet I could make and just my gut feel with my expertise, I would think that this would be charged by prosecutor Becker. And I think there'll be a conviction. Um, I, 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 you know, I can't see in viewing even the last 10 seconds, but certainly with the benefit, and I encourage people to watch the full three minutes, the AP put a good video cutting the different cell phones together with his uh, officer's camera, which mysteriously went off uh, before the shooting. Um, so you can see the whole interaction. I, I cannot see a way that even, even if we accept as true that that taser was some, somehow usable, right, or still a danger, even if we accept as true that he was bigger or the officer was felt, um, you know, he was uh, he was saying something to him that we couldn't hear on camera, even with the benefit of all, I guess, these possibilities. Uh, I don't see how you possibly justify a shot to the back of the head when you're on top of a man that you pulled over for having the wrong license plate on the wrong car. Um, because at the end of the day, those are the facts. And if it's a failure of his training, then I then that's there's other people that should be held accountable too. Uh, but you don't escape accountability just because uh, you you weren't trained well or you didn't know what to do or you panicked. Um, you, you killed someone in cold blood, and there's consequences for that. Just like there is always consequences in Kent County uh, for people who resist and obstruct. Uh, Justin, it does not take this long to write a warrant for uh, my client who pulled his wrist back from a police officer in Kent County and was charged with a four-year felony for resisting obstructing. Uh, that didn't take long to charge. This shouldn't take long either. Is And I, I lied because I have one more question because you, <laughs> you, you made an interesting point there. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where this lands. Is improper training, I know it wouldn't let the guy walk, but is that a mitigating factor if this officer can demonstrate, look, I was trained by my sergeant. I mean, I, it's kind of like a, an American version of the Nuremberg trials, like, you know, just following orders. I mean, right. I hate to invoke that, especially with my good Jewish friend, but it's like, is that a, a mitigating factor at all? If let's say it's true, let's say this officer can demonstrate, look, I filed a letter to the law. Like if that guy has his hand on his taser, we're taught to bring out our gun. Like I'm just, just, I'm making that up. But is that a mitigating factor potentially with sentencing or even, uh, a conviction versus an acquittal. Sentencing always. Keep, keep in mind, you know, let's separate uh, liability, criminal liability from what your punishment should be. Everything's on the table at sentencing, right? Um, panic, remorse, training, all those things matter in fashioning what the right sentence should be. As far as criminal liability goes for second degree murder, there's really two elements that matter. You killed someone, someone died, that element's met, and you did it intentionally. Uh, I'm well, there's a third element that matters very much, but someone died, you killed them intentionally, and it wasn't justified. It's met here, uh, in my view, whether he was trained poorly or not. Um, if it wasn't justified by self defense, it was an unjustified killing. Uh, as far as it goes for sentencing, though, you know, second degree murder is not mandatory life, um, it comes into term of years up to life, and all of that matters. And certainly, if it's the case excuse me, if it's the case that there was poor training, that there was panic, that there was exhaustion, that there was irrational fear, unreasonable fear, those things matter. And that's what you do as a defense attorney. And we talked about it in the in the Oxford shooting case, that it was a case of mitigation and trying to avoid the worst possible outcome. 
Uh, and maybe that's what it'll be here. I don't know yet. But the first step is first step first here. You have law enforcement investigating law enforcement um, a, and a prosecutor in a very conservative county that I would imagine has a lot of we support our police signs on, on lawns and communities. First things first here is I want to see some courage in this investigation and from this prosecutor to identify wrong is wrong. From there, we'll start hearing what the circumstances are, who's to blame, what what really happened. Uh, I don't know. Did, is he going to say that he pulled the trigger by mistake? I mean, he pulled the gun out pretty fast and was leaning with leverage. I, who knows what the possible defenses are. But first things first is this needs to be charged and shown the seriousness that prosecutors have no trouble showing uh, uh, a lot of other criminal defendants, even so if it's one of your own, uh, you should be doing the same. Yeah, I would be shocked that there's not a charge. I mean, a conviction is obviously a higher standard, but there certainly appears to be enough that this needs to be brought to trial. We'll get there. I'd love to have you back as the story you know, evolves and develops. And there's probably going to be some wrinkle. Uh, who knows if it'll change anything? Uh, there, it just always seems to be the case. The, there's the a lot problem. of good defense attorneys. There'll be some wrinkle. Well, and yeah, but even even ones that just are organic. The Crumbway sure. case had a number of them. It's like every every not anymore, but that first two weeks after, there was something new coming out every day. It felt like uh, you know something they know knew or should have known or whatever. So I'd love to have you back at some point, but I, I got to commit to the next time I have you on, if you're up for it, we talk about something a little less upsetting and, and depressing. But let um, me, let, I, my blood can still boil, but let me go off on Chris Illich or something I, instead of. Uh, and something uh, this serious, but no, I, I I appreciate your trust, Justin, and then your followers who have kind words for me on Twitter. Thank you. Um, and you know, any time somebody wants to hear from me on the on these kind of things, I'm I'm complimented. So so thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. Uh, right back at you. We appreciate you. That was our our second episode of Off the Curb. May you did a great job. You've done both versions of our show. You know that a lot. Of, yeah. So I got to get my studio back and hopefully the next time we do have you in, it'll be uh, not in a little box on my computer. And, and now I get the veterans minimum when I come back. I've been in this league a long time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. If you do five more appearances, I actually like, I, I can't trade you to any other podcast. <laughs> it's not like you have a right to refuse other appearances and uh, you just do my show. So <laughs> Uh, appreciate everyone out there and uh, weighing in. You're, you're the best. Uh, I wouldn't call anyone else for this stuff. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a legacy, man. Your, your dad was a legend. You're following in his footsteps and appreciate, appreciate you sharing that. with our audience, our incredibly high IQ, uh, high intellectual, highfalutin audience. You're, <laughs> you're a great mind. Thank we you. do appreciate it. And thank you Thanks, to Ben. Justin. Ben is happy doing this show because he can do this on, on his couch uh, and his boxers. Eric <laughs> style. So thank you to Ben. Thanks to the audience. Wait, to think, man. Great to see you. Thanks. You too.